You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 1 to 7, and verse 12. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vapor. It is a grievous evil. And if a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vapor and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good, do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vaporous life, which he passes like a shadow. Chapter 7, verse 3 to 12. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money, and the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them. This is vapor. It is a grievous evil. An evil Solomon sees under the sun. Lying heavy, he says, on mankind. The one to whom God gives wealth and possessions and honor. One who lacks nothing of all that they desire. Yet is without the power, Solomon says, to enjoy them. This, he says, is vapor. A grievous evil. And as I read this passage, I worry. I worry because I think it might expose me, name me. I worry because I don't think I can escape from the grasp of this judgment in my own life. 
this evil under the sun, which lies heavy, Solomon says, on all of humanity, even me, that when we don't get what we want, we're left disappointed, unsatisfied. And even when we get the things that we want, still, for whatever reason, we're left unable to enjoy these things for any lasting time. It's a grievous evil, Solomon says. And I'd imagine many of us have many of the things that we want, don't we? Um, Maybe you've even had days in your life where you've been able to say that you lacked nothing, that you had good food and good music and good scenery and good company, all these good things around you, but still you find yourself lonely. Still, you're disappointed. You feel down, that something's missing. You know your life is filled with good things and something's still missing. And it seems that God, to use Solomon's terms, God has not given you power to enjoy the good things that God's given you in your life. And as Solomon puts it, your soul is not satisfied with life's good things. Next, Solomon says something surprising about such a person as you and me in our own wrestlings with this. I say that a stillborn child is better off, he writes. For it comes in vapor and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Solomon goes on to say, the one who lives a thousand years twice over, yet enjoys no good, is worse off than the stillborn child. It's quite a statement. Mere existence, it seems, is not a good in itself. There are situations, we find, where it would be better not to have been born, something that we find our Lord Jesus saying in a different context, that the darkness that shrouds the unborn life is better off than long life without the power to enjoy it. Now, let me be abundantly clear that this is not a justification for suicide, for anybody taking their own life. It is saying that life is given to be enjoyed, as we'll find uh, life given to be protected and preserved. Uh, The point is not that if you don't have power to enjoy life, then you're to end life, or that life is worth ending, but quite the opposite, that if you don't have the power to enjoy life, we ought to pursue it with all that we have. Because life, according to the Bible, and according to Solomon here, for all its troubles and woes, is made nonetheless to be enjoyed. The good gifts of God to be enjoyed. We were made to feast and to build friendships and strong communities. We were made to enjoy every gift that comes from the hand of God. And to miss this, to miss such pleasures, is to be worse off than the stillborn. So, here we are. We have, but we're not happy. Or as Solomon puts it, all the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. And this all is very confusing, says the teacher. This dynamic, this sad and evil dynamic that lays over all of humanity. 
It's all confusing, as he says in verse 12, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vaporous life? Who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vaporous life? It reminds me of a story or a parable that I recently read about a man in the village with his son. And uh, what happens is the son's horse runs off and the people in the village mourn with him. Oh, but poor you, what, what, bad, what bad luck. And the father says to his son, but how do you know, son, if this, not, if this was not a blessing? And a little later, his horse turns up and his horse actually comes back into the land and brings with it another stronger horse. And everybody said, wow, what good luck. What, what, what a blessing this is for this, uh, for this young man. And the father says to his son, how do you know, my son, whether this is not a curse? And his new horse then uh, it gets taken in and the son is riding the horse and one day causes injury to him somehow. And everyone says, oh, this is this is awful. And the father again says, how do you know, my son, whether this is not a blessing of its own kind? And sure enough, uh, the way the story ends is that uh, a raiding um, company comes in and takes the life of every, every, every able-bodied man. And so in that way, his life is spared. And he and his father end up enjoying um, the ability to care for each other into the father's old age and things go well. But it, it, it all brings to mind this same question that Solomon asks, for who knows what is good for man? while he lives the few days of his vaporous life, which he passes like a shadow. Who knows? Who knows? Most of us are very rich by the world's standards, globally. Most of us have many of the things in life that we most need. And perhaps many of us even have many of the things that we most want. And yet, many of us want more or different things. We like our jobs, but it would be better if this or that changed. We, we'd like a better boss. We, we like our, our spouse, but we'd like a spouse who wasn't so X or didn't need so much Y or didn't struggle so much with you name it. We like our kids. We like our neighbors. We like our neighborhoods, perhaps, uh, our homes. But you get the point. There, there are things that we would like changed or different about them, and perhaps that would allow us to experience some kind of satisfaction in this life. But who knows what is good for a man? We're striving for all these things that we think that we want and, and the things that we think that we need, but who knows, once we get them, whether we'll in fact be satisfied. Who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vaporous life? Who knows? One of the ideas the teacher presses us to consider here is maybe, just maybe, what you already have is precisely what you need. Maybe what you have right now is precisely what God has determined to give you in his kindness. Maybe the way forward to enjoyment of life and all of its gifts isn't the accumulation of all things, but the practice of contentment in all things. But now, how do we get this kind of satisfaction? How do we get at that kind of 
contentment, that we, we, we want to be content. All of us wants to be content. We, we don't want to be an uncontented people with what we have. But where do we get the power to enjoy every gift from the hand of God? Isn't that something that you want? Don't, don't you want power to enjoy your children? Um, power to enjoy your work, power to enjoy your house or your spouse or your friendships, your community. Don't we want power to be able to enjoy the good things that are already given to us? And what we're going to see here in the rest of our time is that many of us try to get at satisfaction, this kind of life satisfaction in the wrong way, namely by going around the miseries of life, by going around some of the challenges in order to get at things the easy way. We think if we could just get through life without suffering, uh, or at least with minimal suffering, without criticism, without having to patiently endure trials of many kinds, then perhaps we'd be satisfied. And what the teacher tells us here, what wisdom shows us, as we'll see, is that deep satisfaction is found not by going around the trials of life, but by, in fact, going through them. Here we'll consider Solomon's three counterintuitive proverbs that he offers on the back end of our uh, passage in chapter 6 and into chapter 7, uh, where he begins to show the way of wisdom in seven, chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, where we find that he commends to us sorrow, he commends to us rebuke. He, he commends to us patient endurance as better ways on the path of wisdom. Sorrow as better than celebration. Rebuke as better than empty praise. Patient endurance as better than saving face and a proud spirit. Sorrow, rebuke, patient endurance. Let these three do their work, exercise their work in molding us into wise people who can be, uh, who can find enjoyment and joy in the gifts that we're given. So first, let sorrow do its work. In chapter 7, verse 1, Solomon says that the day of death, here's a surprising proverb of sorts, uh, that the day of death is better than the day of birth, which is not to say that dying is better than living. That's not, I don't think that's what he's getting at here, but uh, experiencing death um, around us, uh, being attentive to death and the dying is better on the path to wisdom. It's more instructive. We need it more than the day of birth. Another way to put it is, if you would be wise, prioritize the funeral over the birthday. Sorrow is better than laughter, he goes on to say. The heart of the wise in the house of mourning, he says while the heart of fools is in the house of mirth or the house of pleasure. Why, you might ask, why prefer the funeral over the birthday? What is it about the funeral that is more instructive to us in wisdom, molds us in the path of wisdom more than the, the day of birth? Well, because wisdom calls us, as we've already seen in past weeks, it calls us to name things as they are to live into this life as life is, and not to pr pretend that all is well when all is not well, um, but to live life in the face of all of its greatest challenges, and even to face them head on, and even face 
death and sorrow as they are, to be instructed, to be formed by these realities. It turns out the things we want most to avoid, wisdom says, don't avoid them. Go to the funerals. Sit in the sorrow. Feel the heaviness of the reality of death. Let death instruct you. Let the dying teach you that life is finite and that our times are short. Let the dying teach you that you're not as important as you thought. That your time too is coming. That that life is not all about you. Your life will start. Your life will end and the world will continue its course. Let dying teach you this, that you are not as important as you thought. Let the dying teach you that we're in a world under the judgment of God, all of us to be swept away under his wrath, as the wise man Moses says in Psalm 90. And let the dying teach you that you too stand in need of forgiveness. You too stand under the judgment of God in need of new birth. What did you think dying and suffering were all about? Did we think that they were all about random chance and happenstance, not related in any way to the dynamics of sin and divine judgment and our need for forgiveness and restoration, not the result of living in a world under the judgment of God, which will then move us to see our need and brokenness and look to him for salvation. This is what death and darkness and sorrow move us towards. And, and Solomon says, be wise, pay attention to these things. Sit with sorrow. Let it guide you. Sit with death. Let it instruct you. Um, if, if you want to think a little more about this, the way that judgment and suffering and death uh, form us and instruct us in God's way, you can spend some time, perhaps this afternoon, reading Jesus' words in Luke 13, the opening passage, uh, um, pericope in Luke chapter 13. Let death and sorrow instruct you. Now, I have to confess that I personally would prefer to avoid these things. God knows this, uh, and my wife does too. That, that I would much rather avoid ah, entering into suffering emotionally. I can do it on an intellectual level. I'd rather not think about death and suffering, the sufferings of others, um, to really enter into that. It, it's, it's not... Um, it's a vulnerable place for me, and, I, and I'd imagine for, for you also. Um, I would rather forget that I'm finite and live as though I'll live forever. I, I don't want death on my mind. I'd rather forget that we're in a world under the judgment of God and live as though my sin doesn't really matter. But here, again, we're instructed differently. We're instructed, even by death, that we are finite, that we won't live forever, that our life is not of utmost importance to the world, that we live under the judgment of God, that our sin matters, and that we stand in need of forgiveness and new birth. And all of this we're instructed in, in the way of sorrow and death. And so let sorrow and death, we're told, do their work. Second, let rebuke do its work. In verse 5, we're told, It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. When was the last time 
that you were rebuked by someone. And maybe for married people, not including your spouse. Uh, or maybe including your spouse. Well, when's the last time you were rebuked by someone? In our day, it seems a wise rebuke, a wise rebuke is hard to come by. But Solomon says, this is something that we need. We need this. It's better than the happy song of fools, than the happy and easy praise of fools. And this word, um, this word is difficult for us. And to be honest, uh, I'm not too optimistic about this word gaining much traction in our time and day and even in our community. Lord, help my unbelief. But uh, I'm not too optimistic. I find that when we are offended, how often do we take it to the person who has offended us? It seems much easier to talk about it with our friends. And when someone suggests that maybe we should talk about it with the person who offended us, uh, it's easy to make mis- excuses. Right? Uh, it's not that big of a deal. Um, they wouldn't listen anyway. Or, or oftentimes, and this is maybe my reason more often, is that I don't want to confront somebody because I don't want to be petty. Uh, I don't want to make something out of nothing to make a big deal out of something that's that's maybe not a very big deal. It's one's glory to overlook an offense, the Proverbs tell us after all. And so um, I prefer not to say anything. And so for all of these reasons, I, we, I, my sense is that we stand as a people who don't, who don't rebuke. Um, And therefore, as a people who also aren't rebuked, uh, and so also probably a people who don't typically take rebuke very well, we're not trained in the exchange of rebuke. And and what I'd like to encourage us to do this morning uh, as a church is that we'd actually step into this, um, to recognize that it's too easy, it's all too easy to maintain the status quo um, of, of how we relate to others, to be nice to each other, and um, I realize that I'm terribly susceptible to this myself. But that, but that we need to hear this word of challenge, of encouragement, to say that we need to love each other enough to be willing to offend, to rebuke, uh, to bring a hard word to one another. It's better for those around us to hear a wise word of rebuke than a foolish song of praise. And so... Um, I invite you, uh, how about this as a start? I, I invite you to hold me to this, that if you, as the church, anyone in the church, are offended by me, um, for whatever reason, if you see a pattern of sin in me, or a particular sin in me, I want to be the first to welcome you to offer your rebuke to me. I ask that you do it in love, uh, with kindness and gentleness and all, all the rest of the fruit of the Spirit, but, but, but to offer it nonetheless. And at the same time, I'd ask that you recognize that you too will likely stand um, in any kind of meaningful relationship in need of a rebuke at some point. And be prepared to receive it in humility from one another in this community of faith. We want to be a church that offers wise rebuke and receives it well, all on the path of wisdom. And if I could say one, one last thing about this before moving on to the next point, um, perhaps we could just pause here for a moment and consider um, you 
can consider a situation in your life now where it may be that the Lord is calling you now to confront someone in love. There may be a difficult conversation ahead of you um, where you're called to offer a word of rebuke. And if that's you, if if that's true, um, if you're finding yourself in need of support, wisdom in order to do that, then I would invite you to speak with me, uh, with Pastor Kyle, Uh, We would love to be able to work with you uh, and work towards becoming this kind of people who both offer rebuke and receive rebuke well. So we've seen uh, the call to let death and sorrow do their work on this path of wisdom, to let rebuke do its work. And thirdly, let patient endurance do its work. We find this in verses 8 through 10. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Uh, Be a little quicker on this point. Anger, uh, which is raised here, anger is generally a symptom of a deeper emotion. Right, um, often sadness or disappointment, feeling unloved or unappreciated, which then we can respond with, with anger. And uh, the teacher tells us, don't let anger get lodged in your heart. Pay attention to it. Okay, um, uh, we ought to pay attention to the anger that we feel. This is not to say push it down, uh, but don't, get a, don't let it get lodged in your heart. Pay attention to it. Uh, figure out what you're feeling and work through it. Um, work through it. Pay attention to what's there. Uh, we're, we're actually, here's a little plug for um, emotionally healthy spirituality that we'll be walking through with the cadres in our group. And I encourage you, um, sign up for that. This will be a wonderful opportunity to walk through some of these issues, not only of anger, but of other, other things. Um, so, that, uh, so that we begin to be emotionally healthy people. When disappointments come, uh, we're told here, don't be entitled with a proud spirit, but instead endure with a patient spirit. Understand that such disappointments too come from the hand of God and that he is committed to doing a work in you, even through those disappointments. Some of you listening are caught up with a lot of anger, uh, a lot of anger in these days over things that have happened to you. Okay, this could be things recent or things in the distant past. And this is an invitation to you to let that anger get unlodged from your heart and enter into this wise process of patient endurance. Okay, and part of this is recognizing, it's an acknowledgement that God is doing a work in this. Right? We're invited as, as God's people, as, as, children of, uh, as children of the King, the creator of all, we're encouraged to trust him in this process of patient endurance, trusting that he's committed to doing a work in us, right? Um, to not be so centered on the injustice or pain of this, whatever this is for you, right? So as to miss the fact that God is doing something, that God is calling you to trust him in the midst of this suffering. He's calling you to endure this with patience and so be formed in his ways. This is not an easy call. Um, why things, especially bad things, happen the way that they do is, of course, a, a mystery. 
But the point of the Christian life, and I think something that I certainly have needed reminders of in my own um, sufferings and feelings of injustice, disappointments, the point of the Christian life and, and the Christian faith is not to live an unscathed life or to avoid every trouble. Right? Um, of, co- of course, horrible things happen, and they happen all the time, all around us. Um, and it is indeed baffling why or how God can allow these things to happen. And still, what we're called to here um, in Ecclesiastes is to take hold of the promise that even through these things, these baffling sufferings, God is committed to making something beautiful, something good out of this awful brokenness, right? Even in your life, uh, he's committed to you. And the question then is, will you submit yourself to him to be sanctified according to his purposes, even through the trials that God enables you to endure? Let endurance do its work. We're instructed, endure what you're facing with patience and hope, with faith in the God who is making all things new. Uh, a quick recap here. Life is hard. Many of us don't get the things that we want and so feel unsatisfied. And then there's many of us who do get the things that we want and still find ourselves unsatisfied without the power to enjoy them, as Solomon says. And so Solomon has encouraged us toward a more realistic path to life. He tells us to let sorrow and death do their work. Prefer the day of sorrow to the day of gladness because they teach us who we are. It's through them, through sorrow and through death, that we arrive at a deeper, more profound satisfaction. He tells us to let rebuke do its work, to prefer honest rebuke to fleeting praise, because rebuke teaches us, again, something important about who we are. It names us as we are. We're able to see blind spots that we had never seen before. And it's then through rebuke that we arrive at a deeper, more profound satisfaction. Finally, he tells us to let patient endurance do its work, to prefer a patient spirit over a proud or angry or impatient spirit, and instead recognize the plight that you're in as as a suffering to endure under the mighty hand of God, even that he might lift you up. That it's through this patient endurance that we arrive at a deeper, more profound satisfaction. Okay, I say this, that these paths of wisdom lead to greater satisfaction because, listen, listen to what the teacher says at the end of our passage. After he said that an inheritance, wealth, honor, etc., is no good without the power to enjoy it. Here at the end of the passage, he says, wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. You see, wisdom makes what what was not advantageous, all of a sudden advantageous. Wisdom leads us to enjoy whatever inheritance we're given. It's wisdom that enables us to see what we have, to receive uh, the good things that we have and to enjoy them from the hand of God. We need, we need wisdom to do this. Solomon goes on in verse 12 of chapter 7, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. It preserves the life of him who has it. And here we find, again, that it's wisdom that protects, wisdom that preserves the life of him who has it and who has wisdom. The teacher has obviously taken another turn here. 
for all those who are under the great evil of having things without the power to enjoy them. Here, then, is his answer. The path to deep satisfaction is not uh, found in going around suffering, but through it. It's not about going around rebuke and criticism, but about going through it. Not about going around patient endurance, but going through it. And maybe you're listening and are cynical. You'd rather experience life satisfaction another way, the easy way. Uh, And here Solomon warns you, he warns us. There is no easy way to that deep satisfaction we desire. The satisfied life comes from taking the path of wisdom, from facing these kinds of challenges head, head on, sitting with them, enduring rebuke and suffering, even to be molded in the path of wisdom, in faith, under the mighty hand of God. And the question, the final question that we'll ask is how, how do we do this? Or how do we know this? How do we know that this is the way forward to the satisfied life? Well, in short, we know this because the most satisfied, peace-filled, worry-free, light-hearted, happy, and joyful human ever, his name is Jesus. And Jesus wasn't one to go around suffering and death, but one who went through them. Jesus was not one to go around rebuke, but one who both received rebuke in humility, the Son of God, and also offered it in humility and boldness. He walked through rebuke toward wisdom, in wisdom. Jesus wasn't one to go around patient endurance, we know, but patiently endured the sufferings, abandonments, insults, beatings, betrayals, even to the point of death. He endured the cross. And see, it's in Jesus that we find that there is no path to wisdom other than the path that wisdom himself has already walked. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God and the glory of God. And for all of us who are faint-hearted at this message, prone to cowardice, weak need, here is the good news for us. That Jesus walks ahead of us in the path of wisdom. He endures our suffering and offers us forgiveness. He endures our rebuke and offers a word of hope. He endures our cowardice and welcomes us to be bold in him, to be bold in faith. And he endures all of this with patient endurance, calling us to follow in his way. Let me pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.